<laughs> Alright, Shabbat Shalom, everybody. You can turn to the book of Nehemiah. And, um, we're going to spend most of our time in Nehemiah 13. Um, and I don't normally title my messages, I guess you could say. So, I don't know. There's, probably, there's a theme to them, I suppose. But... Um, Nehemiah, Ezra, Nehemiah. Yeah, Nehemiah. So I, I recently read through Nehemiah, and oh, so if if I were to title this, I would call Nehemiah a life of conflict, uh, which is exactly what it is, and. It just struck me, as I read through it this past time, and we read from it during the festival of Sukkot, uh, because they, it's recorded that they, they celebrated Sukkot, and it had been a long time since they had, as, they, as the exiles had, had come back from, from Babylon. But what struck me, as I, as I read it this time, and, and in thinking about it, is how... Um, Oh, a lot of things. But how... Well, first off, Nehemiah was not one of the first ones to go back to Israel after the Babylonian exile. It was first with Ezra and the captives that went back. And they started... They rebuilt the altar and reinstituted some of the sacrifices. And then when Nehemiah went back, they rebuilt the wall. He went back to Persia, came back to Israel... And there was just nothing but conflict and nothing but, with, but problems uh, ever since the captives went back, the Israelites went back, the Jews to Israel. They were still a disaster and they were still a mess and they weren't doing what they should and it just seems like it's a story that never ends. But that's exactly what the story is all about through the Bible is God's people... Um, Disobeying them, repenting, turning back, and saving them and uh, from from their problems, and so it also struck me too how really since they went into the land um, and they conquered it, and then really didn't fully have peace until David and Solomon. It was really that small little point in time during David and Solomon's reign that there was actually, and even that was not. not quite so, with David and his life and issues there, uh, where Israel was actually reigned by one king with good people, you know, priests and Levites, and a king on the throne, uh, and their lands at peace, and they had mo- all, mo- all or most of the territory that they were supposed to have, until really uh, today, where you actually have... Israel, the Jews, at least physically, not all of them obviously believers, but back in the land with their own autonomous rule. Now, I still think those who are governing Israel today are are uh, some mixed multitude that we're going to read about <clears throat> a little bit in here, and because they're not, they're still not allowing the people who believe, believe and want to keep the Torah to live out, keep the Torah, and do things as they should be. It's still the same thing going on. And so what happened was, you in the story of Nehemiah, 
Nehemiah hears that the land is still in ruin and the wall is not built. And so he prays and asks God to send him back. And God does. He allows him because uh, the king sees that he's downcast. Why are you downcast? Oh, I, you know, how could you not be when you hear that your land of your forefathers is in disarray? So he goes back and he has nothing but conflict with the people there in the land to try to get them to do what is right, to return to the Torah, to keep the Sabbath, to build the walls, to maintain the priesthood, to not have it riddled with corruption. And so he has to continually deal with these things. So I think that Nehemiah in so many ways is obviously a prophetic book, but it's a prophetic book of what I think is even starting to happen now with some of the exiles returning back into the land. But we are still going to have to contend for the land and contend with ourselves and our own people to get them to return to God's Torah and to live out His ways and will for us um, in, um, in the land. <laughs> and so, Nehemiah has nothing but a life of conflict. Um, so, Israel, essentially from its inception, is, is ruled and controlled by foreigners. And even when they go back from the Babylonian captivity, they're not really under their own rule. They are still... Um, uh, servants of another king, even though they have somewhat of their, you know, they're basically, you know, a conquered people that get a little bit of their own autonomy, only given to them by, by their foreign king. So, what I find interesting, so, is, even though they return, God doesn't just magically take conflict away and fix everything. You know, and think, oh, the exile's over, we're all going to get to go back, and it'll all be peaches and cream, is what, you know, if I had been in the Babylonian captivity, and, okay, the end of 70 years, we're going to get to go back. But the story's much more muddied than that. After 70 years, not all of them go back. They don't all go back at the same time. When they get back into the land, it's, it's full of uh, foreigners, yeah, they have to rebuild everything. Yeah, they have to start from scratch, you know. And God doesn't magically fix it all for them. And I kind of think that it's going to be the same way for us. And it is the same way right now that God doesn't magically just snap his fingers and fix everything. But what he does do, and what he does for guys like Nehemiah and Ezra and Hosea and all these people who are were prophets at that time, is he's with them through it all. And he gives them the strength. And if they rely on his word, uh, he, he's, he works out a way for them to do it. But it's a lot of hard work along the way and heartache and conflict that, um, that Nehemiah has to go through. So what does Nehemiah do to make it through? Well, basically two, two primary, well, I could say three things. He, there's prayer, he's man of prayer. He's a man that's dedicated to God's word, and he's a man that uh, doesn't fly away, fly uh, shy away from dealing with conflict, and dealing with problems and issues. So we see in the beginning of the book. If we go back there, so you want to go to Nehemiah one, that he hears about um, the the walls being broken down. Hang on a second. 
so we'll start in verse 3. And they said unto me, The remnant are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. So he finds out that Jerusalem, even though they've gone back, is still a disaster. Four, verse 4, And it came to pass, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned certain days, and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And I said, I beseech thee, O Yehovah, God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth the covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments, let thine ear now be attentive and thy eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now, day and night, for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which have sinned against thee, both I, my father's house, have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee, and not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments. And that which thou hast commanded thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee, the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If you transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if you turn to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you were though were the, though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of the heavens, yet will I gather them from thence, and will bring them into the place which I have chosen to set my name there. Now these are thy servants and thy people, and thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant, and to the prayer of thy servant who desire to fear thy name, and prosper, I pray thee, the servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. So then he goes in, and the king sees that he's all downcast, and he says, what's the matter with you? And he prays again. He says, oh, how can I, how can I not be uh, sad when everything is broken down and, and burned. And um, so he gets to go back uh, to Israel. But what he finds there is just everything's a disaster and a mess. And there's uh, Israel's enemies have somewhat infiltrated into the priesthood. And um, But what I want to get into is is, uh, is um, chapter 13, where, where Nehemiah has to deal with this conflict <laughs> that happens. And um, so what you have here is the, the people are repenting and turning back uh, unto uh, the word of God and wanting to keep, keep his commandments. So um, I'll just start a little bit and we'll, we'll kind of get into it. So verse 13, on that day they read, or chapter 13 verse 1. On that day they read in the book of Moses in the audience of the people wherein was found written that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever. Because they met not the children of Israel with bread and with water, but hired Balaam against them, that he cursed them, that he should curse them. Howbeit our God turned the curse into a blessing. Now it came to pass when they heard the law that they separated from Israel all the mixed multitude. Therefore this and before this, Elashib the priest, having oversight of the chamber of the house of our God, was allied unto Tobiah. So Tobiah was, um, he was a bad guy. He was one of their enemies. And so uh, he had become, this priest had become allied unto Tobiah. And uh, there was this corruption going on. For he had prepared for him a great chamber, when, where aforetime they laid the meat offerings, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes, the corn, the new wine, the oil, which was commanded to be given to the Levites, the singers, and the por uh, porters, and the offerings of the priests. But all this time was I not at Jerusalem. 
For in the two and thirtieth year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I came unto the king, and after certain days I obtained leave of the king. So he he was in Israel. He went back, and then he came went back to Babylon. Then he came um, back to Israel. And so while he was gone, this um, Elishib the priest had allied unto Tobiah, and they prepared for him a great uh, uh, this great chamber. Where everything was stored, so they allowed. So the fox was in the hen house. Essentially, you had this bad guy who had lied under the priest, and so he comes back, <laughs> and I love what he does. Um, seven, and I came to Jerusalem and understood of the evil that Elishib did for Tobiah in preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God, and it grieved me sore. Therefore, I cast forth all the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I commanded, and they cleansed the chamber. And hither I brought again the vessels of the house of God with the meat offerings and the frankincense. And so he dealt with it head on. And he wasn't going to deal with this garbage and this infiltration that had happened. And he went in. And so I think it's going to be, and it is the same way for us even personally in our own lives, that we have to come in and we have to confront the infiltration that has happened in our own lives of the enemy that has crept in and allied itself. And this happens... I believe, personally, congregation-wise, denomination-wise, denominate, and 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 over in the land of Israel, that it has happened, and it's going to take. I believe, it's going to be the same pattern when we come out as we're coming out again. That um, we have to contend for the faith, as, as Paul tells us, and so uh, it's not going to be a piece of cake. So, this I wanted to read this note that I have on Nehemiah. Uh, having to deal with this conflict. Um, but first I want to, in this one chapter, I want to line up, I went through here and I, I underlined uh, and wrote down all the different times that he has to deal with conflict. And so so you have verse 8, he's grieved. It grieved me sore. So he casts forth out of the house, household stuff. Verse 9, he commands. And then on 11, I contended with the rulers. And 17, then I contended with the nobles of Judah. Verse 21, or 19, sorry. And I charged that they should not be open until after the Sabbath. So he's talking about the, the gates. So he's talking to the leaders again. 21, I testified against them. <laughs> 20, uh, 21 again, I'll lay hands on you. 22, uh, and I commanded the Levites. And then in 25, I contended, cursed, smote, plucked off the hair, and made them swear. <laughs> you know, so he has to deal harshly with this stuff. He takes a bull by the horns because it was chaos. And he's not done yet. 28. Uh, one of these bad guys was in there, and so therefore I chased him from me. You know, so this was a physical thing he was engaged in. And he didn't take, take any prisoners. You know, because there was this mess. And so he went right in and he dealt with this conflict. So I want to read this uh, note that I thought was pretty good. So Nehemiah faced both external and internal opposition to all that God was directing him to do. Internal and external opposition to all that God had directed him to do. You would think, the seven years are over. The exile's over. We're going to be back. It's going to be great. No, it was terrible. It was a mess. There was so much to undo. And it's the same thing now. As we are coming out, 
It's a mess. It's terrible. And there's so much to undo. And there's internal and external opposition that we have to deal with all the time. We have to recognize that. And what are the things... What What is... What are the enemies trying to get control of and keep us from doing? Keeping the commandments. Um, tearing down leadership. And corrupting the finances. And when we, when we see, we see that all, all over the place, right? The commandments, the leadership, and the finances. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so he faces internal and external opposition. External opposition come from, came from foreigners such as Sambalat, Geshem, and Tobiah. They fiercely opposed the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls. So that's the mark of this. The enemies of God and the enemies of those of us who are trying to reestablish the Torah and turn back to him will oppose the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. That which protects the place where God dwells, basically, in the, the holy city. And the, and, the, and the maintaining of all things. So that's what our enemies are going to oppose. They mocked Nehemiah's leadership. So, interesting there. Another interesting point. The opposition gradually grew to include other Arabs, Ammonites, people from Ashdod, who plotted attacks against the builders. To meet this opposition, Nehemiah posted guards. So he didn't just cry and, you know, pray harder. You know, he took physical action. Not that praying is important. It's very much so. He posted guards, prayed for God's help, developed an emergency warning system, and kept working. Israel's frustrated enemies made several attempts to disgrace or kill Nehemiah. So his life was at risk. He put his life on the line. However, Nehemiah had the wisdom to avoid or frustrate their plots while focusing on the tasks God had given him. So Nehemiah had wisdom that I believe was God-given because he had dedicated himself to do what was, was right. Nehemiah also faced internal problems. The wealthy Jews were mistreating the poor by charging high interest. Jews had married foreigners who worshipped other gods. Many were not tithing or keeping the Sabbath holy. Confronting these problems required a firm commitment to the principles explained in Scripture. I'll read that again. Confronting these problems required a firm commitment to the principles explained in Scripture. Boldness in insisting that the people follow these divine instructions and compassion in restoring people to fellowship after the confrontation. I don't even think these, these people who write these notes understand what they're saying. You know? Confronting these problems required a firm commitment to the principles and scriptures. We have to maintain that. And boldness in insisting that the people follow these divine instructions. Because So it's the same pattern all, all over and over again. The people of God not obeying the words that he had commanded them, they fall into destruction, and then their enemies rule over and attack them from without. Whereas when they obey and they keep the commandments, God says he will keep the enemies from them. It's when the people disobey the enemies come in. So he's dealing with these internal problems. Finally, uh, finally he had to oppose the high priest 
who had allowed Tobiah to use one of the temple storerooms. So the corruption went all the way to the top. The high priest himself had become an ally with the very enemy of Israel. You know. And, and it's no different today. It's always been the same. It's been the same from day one. And the sooner we wrap our minds around that and, and stop putting our faith and trust in men and just individually will each of us do what God says and not have our favorite leader you know, dictating everything from us, we'll all do better. And God will be able to work through us better. So each of these cases, in each of these cases, Nehemiah courageously followed the example of early leaders such as Moses, who opposed the worship of the golden calf, Samuel, who opposed those involved in Baal worship, Nathan, who opposed David's sins, and Jehoshaphat, who trusted in God to defeat a much stronger enemy. Like these early men of God, Nehemiah took a stand for what was right instead of letting those for whom he was responsible go their own ways. He refused to be discouraged or intimidated by internal difficulties or external threats against him. He consistently depended on God for wisdom and for blessing his work. I thought that was a great note. So Nehemiah's life was a life of conflict. And so will ours be. And the sooner we accept that and carry on, the sooner we'll, we'll all be where God will like us to be. Uh, but it wasn't a, wasn't a cakewalk. So let's, let's keep going here in chapter 13. So he uh, kicks Tobiah out of the temple. Verse 9 of chapter 13. Then, they, then I commanded, and they cleansed the chambers, and thither brought I again the vessels of the house of God, with the meat offering and frankincense. 10. And I perceived that the portions of the Levites had not been given them. For the Levites and the singers that did the work were fled everyone to his field. So if the people, it's this trickle-down effect, if the people don't tithe, then the Levites and the singers and the priests don't have money and food to be able to do their jobs, and so they still have to eat and feed their families, so they head back to the fields, and, and the service of God stops. 11. Then I contended with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them down in their place. So he goes right for the jugular. He goes right after the rules. He rounds them up and he finds them. And I was like, what are you doing? Then I brought all Judah. Then I brought all Judah the tithe of the corn and new wine and oil into the treasuries. 13. And I made treasurers over the treasuries. Shemaiah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, and of the Levites, Padaiah. And the next to them was Hanan, the son of Zakur, the son of Matan. And they were counted faithful, and their office was to distribute unto their brethren. Remember me, O God, my God, concerning this, and wipe not out my good deeds that I have done for the house of God and for the offices thereof. So he sends these little prayers. Well, 15. In those days I saw in Judah some treading wine presses in, on the Sabbath, and bringing in sheaves and laden, laden asses, as also wine, grapes, and figs, and all manner of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I testified against them in that day, wherein they sold victuals. And there dwelt men of Tyre also therein, which brought fish and all manner of ware, and sold on the Sabbath unto the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. And I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that ye do, and profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers thus, and did not 
our God bring all this evil upon us and upon the city and yet bring more wrath upon Israel by profaning the Sabbath day? So he sees them working, ladying their asses, selling their wares, bringing it into Jerusalem, <coughs> treating it like any other day, not keeping it holy, not keeping it set apart. And, and so he says to them, didn't you learn from, you know, from before why we even went into exile? Because we were profane the Sabbath day. And so it's the same thing for us today. We need to keep the Sabbath day holy and not profane it. You know, not buying and selling, not working, not making others work for us. It's not perfect because we are in the exile, but we should be doing the best we can. So he contended with them nobles of Judah. Again, the leadership. He goes to the leadership. Uh, 19. And it came to pass that when the gates of Jerusalem began to be dark the Sabbath, I commanded that the gates should be shut and charged that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And some of my servants I set at the gates that there should no burden be brought in on the Sabbath day. So the merchants and sellers of all kind of wear lodged without Jerusalem once or twice. And I testified against them and said to them, Why lodge you about the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time forth, they came no more on the Sabbath. 22. I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should come and keep the gates and sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of thy mercy. So he prays again and commands the Levites. <clears throat> In those days also saw I Jews, were 23, that had married wives of Ashdod, of Ammon, and of Moab. And their children spake half the speech of Ashdod, and could not speak the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. So the people had intermarried again and mixed in, and their kids didn't even know how to speak Hebrew anymore. They were uh, you know, completely uh, mixed in with the other nations. And the problem with that is, is not because God just hated all the other people except the Israelites. The problem was their culture and their religious beliefs was the problem. Because like just like Ruth the Moabite was joined in with Israel and you get the line of David from her, you can leave whatever heritage or background you were and become adopted into Israel and take on Israel's ways. But they didn't do that. They were going the other way. They were mixing with the nations. And so one of the first things that happened is their language was lost, their culture was lost, their uh, um, code of conduct, their law, the Torah was being lost. So, 25, I contend with them and cursed them and smote certain with them and plucked off their hair and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations was there no king like them who was beloved of God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, even him did outlandish women cause to sin. Shall we then hearken unto you to do all this great evil to transgress against our God and marrying strange wives? So he says, even the King Solomon, who was the wisest man in the world, fell by these things. What makes you think you're any better? You know, we all tend to think, oh, that won't happen to me. You know, I'll, I'll be okay. I can handle it. No, you can't. And he went right after him. 28. And one of the sons of Jariah, the son of Elishib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horite. 
Therefore, I chased him from me. So, um, the high priest's son, who would have been heir to the priesthood, was married to uh, was married to one of Sambalat's daughters, the Horite. Again, one of the same uh, enemies, and so they had even the high priest's son had intermarried with their enemies, and so he chased him from. He basically exiled him and kicked him out and said, "You're you're gone." Remember them, oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Again, the leadership had defiled themselves and had corrupted things. Thus I cleansed them from all strangers and appointed the wards of the priests and the Levites, everyone in his business, and for the wood offering at times appointed for the first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, for good. But we know the rest of the story, and it all falls apart again. And it just, it, it blows my mind to some degree, to even wrap my mind around how, you know, you have Israel that's been, it's been a struggle from the beginning, and, and then kind of in the middle you get Yeshua coming to redeem Israel of their sins, because God promised he would send a Savior to reconcile them back unto himself. But we still await the physical redemption of Israel. But we have examples of guys like Nehemiah who contend. They're grieved, they command, they contend, they charge, they testify, they command, curse, swear, pluck, and chase. You know, to set things up as they are. And they deal with this conflict from internally and externally. And uh, so I think we uh, need to learn a lesson from Nehemiah and do the same thing and not grow weary. Even though I think Nehemiah was extremely wearied in dealing with all of this, he did. He didn't. He didn't waver in doing right. He he. Even though he didn't even really fully get to have a life settled in the land, you know, because he was in Babylon. He was a cupbearer, and then he went to Israel. He came back to Babylon. Went back to Israel again. You know, his life was not peaches and cream, but he still chose to do what was right. And it was a part of all the process of God uh, working in his people. And, um, and so the same thing continues today. So my hope is that all of us will, you know, not grow weary in contending with conflict in our own lives, congregations, you know. And uh, look to God for our stability and our leading and to hold fast to his word, to pray. And uh, to have that closeness of that relationship, which I think Nehemiah had with God, and that's what I believe sustained him through all of it, is because he had a relationship such with God, he could con- call on him at any time, uh, even in the most difficult situations. And he was willing to put his livelihood and his life on the line for what was right. And he didn't back down from it. So, let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for today and uh, for this Shabbat, for your word, for the life and story of Nehemiah and all that you do uh, for us, did for for your people and have done. And I pray that you would continue to work mightily on our behalf and that we would be uh, bold in serving uh, you and dealing with conflict, internal and external, and uh, that we we would be people of prayer and dedication 
uh, returning to your word and implementing it into our lives that it would change our lives and our families and that you would bring the redemption and gather us back onto your land um, and that we would rely on you in that process and, and do what's right. So I just ask that you just bless the rest of today and this week. And I thank you for this time to be here and study your word. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen.